welcome to the Issues on Appeal podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Diker. This is episode 11, Getting Paid. Thanks for joining me. This week's show is again sponsored by Commercial Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. But more about CSBA later in the show. Our topic this week is about attorney fees and some of the unique challenges and concerns facing appellate practitioners in just getting paid. My guest is Kristen Norse, an appellate attorney at Kynes, Markman, and Fellman in Tampa. My discussion with Kristen is coming up next. Kristen Norris, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So you are one of these people, it's hard for me to even decide what to, how to describe you because you've done so much stuff. You're, you're, you just finished being the immediate past chair uh, of the appellate practice section of the Florida Bar. You have been chair of the appellate court rules committee. You were president of the Florida Association of Women Lawyers. (laughs) Yes, I have a hard time saying no, obviously, <laughs> um, and it's it, things that I enjoy, but uh, I'm kind of a law nerd, so. So currently you're a partner at Kynes, Markman, and Fellman in Tampa, and uh, how would you describe your practice? Solely in the area of civil appeals and some uh, trial support, so, you know, helping with dispositive motions and things like that. Um my favorite thing is no discovery whatsoever, <laughs> just <laughs> just the law. <laughs> I'm just there to apply the law to the facts. So we really, um, my practice is primarily just that. Uh, I have two partners who do criminal practice in both state and federal and both at the trial court level, post-conviction and appeals. Um, so we we have that capacity in our firm. But, but for my purposes, really, it's just the civil appeal side. So I wanted to bring you in to talk a little bit about something that we're all interested in, right, which is money, uh, <laughs> attorney's fees. And, you know, from a, the perspective of, of an appellate lawyer, how do we make decisions about fees that we're going to charge and how do we structure fees and that sort of thing? Because it's a little bit different than some of our, our colleagues go through it. I think sometimes, although certainly there's a lot of variety in fee arrangements at any level, I think the the appellate level is a little bit different, so I thought we could talk about that a little bit. That'd be great. I do think that's an area where we all tend to be in our little bubbles and we don't share a lot of information about that. So being able to hear um, ideas from other attorneys and how they handle it, because there really are just a, a bunch of different scenarios and factors that go into it. And you're right, it's a totally different billing structure from a trial attorney or a transactional attorney. Yeah, it's something I think that we don't appreciate until we get mixed up in it and realize, boy, we have to think about some different issues as appellate lawyers. Well, so tell me a little bit about what, what are some of the various types of fee arrangements that, that you enter into with clients. Let's, let's start there with the basics, and then we'll kind of branch out into some of the um, concerns and other issues and, and the process. Our fee arrangements tend to fall into one of four categories. Um, there's obviously the the traditional one. That's the retainer agreement with an hourly billing. I think that's sort of been the model of how attorneys bill forever. Forever, right. <laughs> and I think really only recently have have people really been pushing back against that model. It's you know, and and so I think that's led me certainly and other lawyers to look at are there other ways we can do things uh, under certain circumstances the second category i think is the flat fee Um, i think attorneys don't always like to do the flat fee because they're they don't know how much time and effort is going to go into something but that's certainly something that um, people are experimenting more with these days and um, the third type of fees that we end up negotiating our contingency fees uh, in the personal injury cases, obviously. Um, And there's some other areas where we sometimes do contingency. And then sort of the fourth category is a blend of anything you can think of. Like, do you do some kind of a a scheduled flat fee for certain work? Um, Do you do a part contingency, part hourly? Um, Do you do a part contingency, part flat fee? So I think that really they fall into those categories. And so how often do you find when, when you're brought into an appeal, 
are you usually presented with a fee option, or is that something that that you decide and sort of present in the other direction, or how how does that negotiation process work, or does it depend on does it depend on where the case is coming from? It probably depends partially on where the case is coming from. I would say most of the time it's uh, how we decide it is based on asking the typically the referrals coming from an attorney for for our purposes and so asking the attorney what the scope of the appeal is what the parameters of the appeal are and then trying to take that and assess based on all of that information what's going to be the best fee arrangement I think some attorneys call you and they have something specific in mind, but most of them just call you because they're in a panic about the order that just got entered (laughs) or um, they're sad that the other side has decided to appeal their wonderful judgment. And so they really want to talk about the mechanics. And then after you get into the mechanics, you start to get into what the fee is. So we don't get too many people who call and have a specific fee arrangement in mind I think when it comes to individuals who might call, they're typically expecting sort of the hourly retainer. Um, but I tend to explore different things with them also because every appeal is really different. Every client's different. And so trying to find the best way to represent the client um, in a way that's economically feasible for you and your firm uh, really, I think, takes some creativity most of the time in appeals. Yeah. So are there are there considerations that you take into account? I mean, how is there a, a way to describe sort of how you evaluate these different types of agreements and what might work for what types of cases? Yes, there's a lot that I, <laughs> I end <bet>. up <laughs> spending time on. I mean, obviously one of the most um, critical things is are we dealing with an individual or are we dealing with a corporate entity? You know, to me, that can be key. We do, I do quite a few family law appeals. And so in that case, you're dealing with an individual. This is coming out of their family budget. Um, That's going to need to be taken into consideration. If you're dealing with a company and this is sort of a budgeted litigation expense that they know about and they've planned for, then, you know, that's going to be a different scenario. So, you know what it what kind of client are you dealing with and i think it you know you just to be competitive you're going to have to think about the financial resources of the client um there are some cases where you can economically take the case because the scope of appeal is limited um for an individual who has less resources than a major corporation um so you you're going to want to consider the financial resources obviously the amount of money at risk um, and I think the other thing that ties into all that is, are, is this client going to be familiar with the court system and billing and attorneys and things like that? I mean, spend a lot of time with family law clients who've never, they've never been in court before their divorce, much less had an appeal. And so are they going to understand how much a fees are and how that's going to work and what their bills are going to look like? You know, we bill in large spurts, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> especially for an hour, you know, for on an hourly. So a trial attorney, if they've been working with a trial attorney, that trial attorney sent them something every month. They've seen filings, they've seen pleadings, they've gone to depositions. When they get our bill, our bills, they're going to see three months with nothing going on or little minimal entries. And then all of a sudden there's a month where you just build, you know, thousands of dollars for a brief they didn't know you were working on the brief. <laughs> they haven't seen the brief. Um, so trying to assess, you know, what what's the level of um, the client's knowledge about fees and billing and things like that, too, I think are important. Um, I think the, the next set of parameters is really what's the scope of the work that you're being asked to do. And I find that people ask me to do drastically different things in different cases and i'm i'd be interested to hear what your experience is too but i get some calls from trial attorneys who really want to write that brief Mm -hmm. they think they know the the subject matter better they think they maybe it's a difficult area of law 
um, or there's some complexity there. And so they, maybe they just want advice or maybe they want me to take the whole appeal because they know that's not their wheelhouse and they want to go litigate some more cases. And so I really get anything from, can you just review my brief to, can you take this case and take it wherever it's going to go? Yeah, I've had that same experience. And the part of the problem with that is the disconnect can be, you know, the trial lawyer wants to be involved, wants to write the brief, or wants to do the oral argument, but it's maybe overestimating their value in the process. And that sounds terrible to say, right? <laughs> but, I mean, I, the, where it gets to be a conflict for me is, like, if you want to write the brief, but you want me to put my name on it, that's a little bit of a challenge, right? And I, I hesitate to agree to that sort right. of scenario because, yeah, I can edit somebody else's brief, but it's never necessarily going to sound like something that I wrote, which I want things with my name on it ideally to sound right. like what I wrote. So that that's one of the issues I get into with that uh, I want to help or I want to be involved. It's like we can, we can do that, but um, we have to have some – understanding of what what really the trial lawyer's involvement is and what my involvement's going to be. I think that's key. Um, I think there really does need to be some set parameters on that because I, too, have been in the scenario where you have a trial attorney who says, I'm only going to need you to do X. And so you set a lower retainer because your scope is limited. And then all of a sudden they realize that they really can't hold up their end of the bargain or they got busy and now they want you to take on more. And so trying to, um, you know, make sure it's pretty clear who's going to do what we have a, a really fast and hard line in our firm that we will not put names on briefs unless we've reserved the right to know the record and the research. And I think it's, you know, we've gotten some pushback on that, but not a lot. And and then sometimes you can kind of leave it open, like we'll draft the contract so that we're just going to be consulting. But if later you want to put us on the on the on the document or have a sign off, then, you know, you'll pay the extra for us to to do our due diligence. But I think you're right. You don't want to file something in your name that you don't know is 100 percent the type of work product that you would do. And so making sure that you're working with attorneys who are going to respect that is, is really important. I mean, you, you don't. I've gotten into that situation where it gets very awkward at the end. And uh, I, I vowed that I don't ever want to find myself in that situation again. <laughs> well, and you know, I, I do say this, that sometimes the best um, the best marketing I have for return business from trial attorneys is the trial attorneys who call me first and they say, I'm going to write the brief and you're just going to have to edit it. And I say, okay. And then they have to spend that 40 hours at the desk trying to write a brief. Mm -hmm. And by the end of it, they tell me, I'm never writing a brief again. I'm going to hire you at the outset and I'm just going to let Why you do I it. Why did I do this? Right. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> right. So, but I, I think being clear about your scope is definitely very important in that scenario. And we write into our contract, you know, we will be counsel of record or we will not be counsel of record. Um, and obviously the contract's always subject to negotiation down the line, but, um, but that's really key. I think, you know, the other thing you think about when you're talking about the scope of appeal, which makes a huge difference, is appellant or appellee. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you're, as appellant, you don't know what that appeal is going to look like a lot of times you're going to start reading the record and what you thought was going to be a great issue is not and then you're going to have to develop another issue and you're going to have to have the initial brief and the reply brief and the argument um so so knowing that you know conversely you can do petitions for cert or some some cases where it's a very single issue non-final appeals and you know this is going to be a pretty simple case it's a limited record so you're always trying to look at what's the time frame on prep and looking at the record and how many briefs am I going to have to file and, and what that scope is. Today's show is sponsored by Commercial Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. 
If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact Commercial Surety. It can be reached on the web at www.commercialsurety.com or toll free at 877-810-5525. Their contact information is always in the show notes. Let me just say one more time that I am thrilled to have a great company like CSBA sponsoring the show. The next time you have a client who needs an appellate bond, please give CSBA a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through the process and give you one less thing to worry about. So when it comes to flat fees, um, how do you approach that timing-wise? I mean, to avoid collectability with the client, if you're going to do a flat fee, do you get all the money before you start work? (laughs) Yes, that's the golden rule. (laughs) (laughs) Ideally. Ideally, ideally, yes. There's no hard and fast rule in the law at all. But (laughs) um, So I think in flat fees, the first thing is, how do you try to set the flat fee? So you've looked at, you know, the resources and you've looked at what you think the scope of the appeal is going to be. I think my first approach in a flat fee is what am I willing to take and just know that I have to do whatever happens? <laughs> um, and and I like flat fees in that you don't then end up really worrying about the time that you've spent. Right. You don't worry in a family law case, you know, oh, gosh, if I go down this rabbit hole on this alternate theory, am I going to charge the client more? And then maybe it doesn't pan out. So psychologically for me, it just frees up. Like I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about the client worrying about it. I have had flat fees where I have divided it. um, Particularly again, in family law cases, you divide it this much before filing the notice of appeal, this much before the brief is due um, I'm hesitant to do it just because if they, once you filed that notice of appeal, once you filed that notice of appearance, are you really going to be able to get out? Right. Um, I suppose that you can say that to the client, right? That if they don't pay, that you're going to withdraw from the appeal, but that may or may not be possible. Right. I've, you know, thankfully never had to file that motion before <laughs> with an impending deadline, but I've always warned people that. You know, I think the court's going to be hesitant to let you withdraw with a with a close impending deadline at a point where you've already kind of put your feet in. So, um, so I do think, for the most part, I want the flat fee up front. I think the problem you sometimes run into with the flat fee is you you take the flat fee up front and then maybe the appeal resolves. And my position on that, I mean, you arguably have the right to maintain that flat fee um, but you also don't want it to be an excessive fee so Mm -hmm. at that point I might look at the time in and maybe refund something if it it just unexpectedly goes away Um, I I would say probably more often I spend more time than the flat fee (laughs) well and there is you know those considerations that that uh, the court is supposed to look at and making a fee award like, you know, did you give up other work in order to take this work right. on and that sort of thing. So there are other factors, but I think that that, that makes sense to take a, a look at it and see what seems fair and reasonable, you know, under the circumstances, even though, like you said, it's, if you draft your fee agreement properly, it's probably due and owing and you could probably right. keep it. Uh, but I, I think we all know that maybe there's cir- circumstances in which some partial refund is appropriate, especially if it's somebody you might get business from again in the future, right? Correct. You know, there's really been a push, I think, in the law generally to move towards flat fees. And I particularly like flat fees. And I guess it's just maybe it's the appellate practitioner control freak in me that it is what it is. I know that I've got that fee and I'm going to do this work for that fee. I feel like the client feels better that they know that's what their exposure is and they've paid it and it's, you know, it's good. Um, and then I, I just feel like then, again, psychologically, you don't, you're not worried every month. You're not having to send out the bills with your time. We track the time anyways, obviously, for fee, you know, fee award purposes. 
but you're not having to send the monthly bills out. I mean, it just cuts down a lot of the the management of the case and frees you up to just sort of work on the law. And, you know, that's what, as appellate practitioners, we like doing the most anyways. That's right. All right. It makes the business aspects easier. Speaking of potential for further business, um, do you – I sometimes have lawyers approach me who are want to refer a case and they are approaching me with the, well, if you do this one uh, on the cheap, right, right, and you do a good job, then there will be more cases. Do you, do you hear that too? <laughs> yes. How do you feel about that? <laughs> right. So it's always – I have this great case. <laughs> But we lost on summary judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, so I think it probably comes up for you also most in the contingency fee arrangement. Sure. And so somebody loses a case on summary judgment or maybe even after trial. And they think they have a really good legal issue. Um, but, you know, statistically, your odds are against you on a, when you're the appellant on appeal. And even with the greatest legal issue, there's no... Um, you know, even when I've looked at a case and seen it and thought, wow, that's a really great legal issue. I think it should get reversed. <laughs> um, you know, you get surprised sometimes. So we tend to require some payment unless we have an established relationship. We may reduce the fee. Um, we may uh, try to, you know, come up with a blend. Um, but we we try not to take anything on it. You know, we're just not in a position to be able to take something without some level of compensation, uh, being a small firm and kind of our practice area. But we do try in building relationships to find a way to manage it at a way that that will make it affordable for the attorney who wants to do it. Um, And I think that usually works. You know, I guess there's like some appeals are us. (laughs) <laughs> um, options that they have, but they they tend to know that you know if they really want to get it uh, a good chance at reversing on appeal, they need an appellate attorney who is going to take that for them. So we we've done you know sort of a cut rate on our fee. We've done a blend, um, but we're really hesitant to take something unless you've already had an established relationship with us. On a t- on a flat contingency where the contingency starts at zero, <laughs> right? <laughs> the contingency, right? Yeah, only if you win yes. and reverse, and right. then win again. And you know, sometimes I get those call and they say, "Well, but we have a right to a fee award." Same thing, you know, whether you'll get the fee award, whether you'll get the reversal, whether you'll collect on that fee award. I mean, those are those are just too unknown to to be able to take anything on the fly typically for us we're in as appellate lawyers we're in sort of a unique situation because usually we are called in by trial lawyers who need assistance of a trial of a appellate lawyer um, and don't have an existing relationship with the client and we're kind of being hired by the lawyer but we're also being hired by the client it's a little bit of an odd situation and a lot of times we get paid by the lawyer do you find that there's any sort of ethical issues or, or problems that appellate lawyers need to worry about in those situations? There's definitely some ethical considerations that you run into when the trial lawyer is the one who wants to hire you and wants to pay. So as we were talking about, if you, you're going to take a case that was a loss and the trial lawyer will pay you to take it, you know, effectively advancing the fee, mm-hmm. um, uh, but knowing that they're going to be the one who loses it if if the case doesn't succeed. And I talked a little bit, um, this is something that always kind of nags at me because we've done it quite a few times. And I always kind of had in the back of my mind, and we have contracts that we've looked over a number of times, but are you know, what are the ethical considerations of that? So I I reached out to Don Smith at Smith and Tozian. He's my um, rules of professionalism sure. guru. Sure. Uh, Don, if is just this person who knows all about legal ethics and the rules and discipline. And you know, he had 
you know, three pointers on this. First, he said, you know, you don't need to worry. It is definitely per- permitted for you to have someone other than the client pay your fee under Rule 4-1.8. Um, you do have to have full disclosure and consent, which is something we've obviously routinely done. Uh, so we have both the client and if there's a, somebody who's going to pay for the client, both sign off on that retainer agreement. But he said the three areas he could see someone getting in trouble is, one, making sure the payor knows that they don't direct the litigation. It's the client's case, and you can't let the payor call the shots. I think in an appeal, the appellate lawyer is allowed to call most of the shots anyways. So I I don't really run into that problem. Um, The second uh, concern that Don had is you need to make sure that the payor knows they're not entitled to any privileged information in the case. And that's never been an issue for me, but I did think after I talked to him that it might be worth putting in a contract too mm-hmm. as a reminder. And then the this is one area where we do run into some issues every now and then. Um, you can't exceed the maximum fees. So we'll get calls from trial attorneys who want to go ahead and have us take the appeal. And maybe it wouldn't be worth us taking. It might be a win even. It's a win, but the the recovery is so minimal that a 5% fee is not going to be worth our taking the case. Right. So we want to charge a 10% fee. Well, that's in excess of the maximums under the professionalism rules if we take that for just the appeal and they've already had to pay the full trial attorney freight. So we can only take that 10%. They can only give us that 10% if either there's a... um, you petition the court to exceed the maximums or they take it out of their share. Right. And so we have had that scenario. And then what we have to look out for is the closing statement. Do they properly account for our fees on the closing statement? Because every now and then you'll see someone put that as a cost because they paid us instead of as a fee. Mm-hmm. And then that does put you in excess of the, the allowable fees. So we have a provision in our agreement that says, you know, you understand that there's maximum fees under the rules of professionalism and that this fee will either come out of your fee or you will petition the court to get that. And we do have a provision that we have to be provided the closing statement, you know, on the theory that we better make sure that that happens. <laughs> Yeah, because the the five percent that's referenced in the rules is the uh, it's the add on right to the right. thirty three and a third, or I guess forty percent uh, that would be charged. But the appellate fee can be more than five percent as long as it's not as long as the total fee isn't exceeding the forty five percent, right? Right. Yeah. Right. But I think a lot of trial lawyers think that since the rules say five percent, that you ought to be happy with five percent, right? Right. <laughs> Yes, no matter what the appeal, 5% is great. Yeah, and it's funny because when I was talking to Don, he said, 5%, that's not very much. <laughs> I said, you're telling me. Um, you know, it, it, I don't think anybody would ever be successful petitioning the, the bar or the Florida Supreme Court to increase that percentage. No. <laughs> but it definitely, in my experience, you know, there's very few cases that appellate attorneys can take at 5% of, you know, whatever that recovery is. Right. It would have to be pretty large. Right. Yeah. What about when you are doing fees on an hourly basis? Um, I assume that you're often asked to do a budget <laughs> or a not to exceed number. Does that... Is that pretty common with your hourly fees? I don't get it a lot, but you do every now and then get somebody who just wants to know the outside range and then wants to cap it. And I'm always hesitant to do that. I What I like to do is I like to offer somebody, I can offer you this flat fee or I can offer you this retainer fee. And the flat fee is a little bit higher than the retainer. Um, because it protects me if I go above. Um, 
and the retainer is a little bit lower, but they understand it, it, it may go above that and it's going to depend on the scope of the appeal and you and how many times you call and <laughs> how many other things I have to do. Um, so I like to give those two options and then the, and then have them take the flat rather than the cap because the cap just really only protects them, not necessarily me. Um, but sometimes, you know, I will set a cap just to give people some comfort. I'll set the cap high, higher than I think I would go. <laughs> right. Um, but if it, if it gives them some level of comfort and I feel that I will probably be able to keep it below that cap anyways, then why, why turn them off just for something that you probably won't get to? Now, how do you deal... Um I'm sorry, I feel like we're jumping around a little bit here. That's but, okay. But with flat fees, because we, we know we've, we all do a lot of flat fee work, I think. Right. Uh, and it's becoming more and more popular. What's your take on dealing with oral argument, which may or may not occur as part of a flat fee, and post-opinion motions? Do you include that or exclude it or add a, an add-on? How do you tend to handle that? That's a really good question, because I was thinking about that when we were preparing for this. I have not done an add-on. I've always figured that when I set the, the, the flat, I need to consider everything I might end up doing. And I've been hesitant to do the add-on because I've wondered what happens when you get to that point. And you don't want to do whatever the next step is. Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't the, for the post-decision motions. Now we have an opinion, and you don't really believe there's a good basis for you to be filing that motion for rehearing. But you have in your contract that if you, they pay you X, you're going to file the motion for rehearing. So there's that issue. And then the other issue, of course, is what if you get to that uh, for oral argument, for example? I don't control whether there's oral argument all the time. I can decide whether I ask for it. But if the other side asks, then an oral argument needs to be had. <laughs> So what would happen if your client said, well, I'm not going to pay you for that? Well, then, you know, well, we know in the second, they'll hold that old argument with a pro se person. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> They're not just going to waive it. So I've always kind of worried about just how we would handle a dispute at that point. So I've always sort of built in, um, you know, whether or not we think, you know, it'll be the flat fee and we'll do oral argument and we'll do the post-decision motions. And then that sort of leaves more at least psychologically for the client i think it leaves more um discretion on my part as to i'm the one directing this and it's not and if you pay me then i do this mm-hmm. i think the, the the flip side and i'm 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 not saying that this is a better approach i'm saying this right. is a, another approach that i've used at times is to uh set up a flat fee that has a additional flat fee if the court orders oral argument mm-hmm. and specifically excludes post-opinion work uh, and is silent on post-opinion work so that <laughs> if that comes up, then we have to sort of negotiate, you know, what that right. what that rate is at that time. Um, the advantage to that is that it allows you to quote a lower flat fee to try and get work in the door that you might otherwise lose. Uh, The disadvantages are obvious, right? I mean, if you don't collect the oral argument fee up front, it might be hard to get from the client later, and you're probably stuck. Um, And it's hard to negotiate fees when you get into that post-opinion, you know, status. So there's ups and downs, but the, the motivation, I guess, to exclude those things is to be able to quote a lower rate because you have less risk, but... Well, and I think the client's going to feel that it's a little bit more fair, too, because maybe there won't be an oral argument, but you've been paid as if you had. And, you know, it's particularly like in the family law world, they've gone to this whole unbundling and you can do this and you can do this part of the litigation, but not that part. And so I could definitely see us getting to that point in appellate practice where you could piecemeal some things. And I, I haven't had it really come up. If I'm appellant, I'm almost always going to ask for oral argument. So I, t- I tend to tell people who might hire me to, to do the appellant side that I, I'm going to want it. 
Um, if I'm a Pele, I guess I usually, in our cases, I assume the other side will. Mm-hmm. But we've had some cases recently that were just, you know, maybe they're just smaller dollar. They're not worth having in a, an oral argument. I definitely do not think oral argument is required in every case. I think a lot of attorneys do, but I, I'm not convinced of it. Uh, and so I've had some cases where I didn't ask for oral argument. So I do think it makes the client feel better that they're not paying for something that really isn't happening on a flat fee. Right. What about, and this is getting to the nitty gritty, and I don't want to ask you to disclose any you know sensitive uh, uh, competitive information here, but the, the big question becomes how do you set the flat fee? Right. Right. What? Um, how do you decide on a number? And we don't necessarily have to talk about the numbers, but <laughs> but you know, do you? What's your process? Do you have a base number that you think is usually fair, and then you add for complexity, or or mm-hmm. or subtract for simplicity, or what? What's your? How does the thought process work in deciding on what that flat fee would be? I would like to say that I have some secret formula back at my desk that I can't share with you as a trade secret, Um, but that's really not true. I start by trying to, as best I can, figure out what I would end up charging if I were charging hourly. So I try to look at what the size of the record is. I've come to the conclusion that I can read through record not transcript at about 200 pages an hour max and transcript at a very slow rate of about 60 pages max an hour and really be able to you know understand it and retain that information so I try to look at the record how much time do I think I'm going to have to spend going through that record and then how many days do I think it'll take me to research the issues that we have at least preliminarily identified and then how much time for writing the brief and then sort of roughly calculate okay if I could do all that on my hourly rate you know how much would that be and then try to set it at maybe a a smidge above that um, knowing that then I'm probably um, I I, you know everything takes longer than I ever (laughs) think it will I don't know if you have that experience but you look at a record, you're like, oh, it's a thousand pages. It's not going to be that bad. And then you're in the middle of it and there's some complex set of documents that you're having to piece together and write a chart about. So, uh, and definitely the writing process, you know, sometimes what I'll do is we have Clio. So it's pretty easy for me to pull up another case that seems to be about the same scope of that case and run how much did we end up billing for time on that case uh, and then try to do a comparison uh, and and pick the closest case I can come to. Um, and that's kind of how I set the flat. And then I keep in, you know, if the client's resources are such that I, I think I can try to be economical about it and, and give them a little bit better rate, I'll, I'll sometimes do that. Uh, but that's that's generally how I try to come up with the flat fee. And I'm like I said, I'm pretty sure I usually exceed it in time. But I feel also just I know what I'm getting into, and I've as long as I've done my due diligence, I know what I'm. You know, I'm not too far off usually. Like you said, though, there it usually doesn't err on. Boy, this wind wound up being a lot less work than I thought it was going to be. Right? right? <laughs> that that really, right. you know, we talk about the risk of a flat fee as well. The client's risk is that you do it a lot faster, and your risk is you do it a lot slower. And that whole lot faster never seems to happen. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> when you're estimating time for writing a brief, do you have any sort of? Uh, guideline for how long you think it takes you to write? Do you, do you think about it by page or, or are you more, more uh, higher level than that? I'm really not higher level. I think I just try to average out like how long it's taken me to write some of my most recent briefs. I, we get such a variety of cases. So I think the easiest ones, you know, we've talked a little bit about the the appeal of a summary judgment. You've got a very limited record, you know, disputed issues of fact. That's going to be your main argument 
Um, and so those tend to be something where you can kind of gauge that you're almost everyone takes about the same amount of time to write. Uh, but we've got cases where, you know, we'll have five issues on a class action certification <laughs> and, you know, there's just no way to even know how long that's going to take. Um, I try not to set flat fees on those that are, you know, just too difficult to try to to anticipate what will happen. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I don't have a scientific. I probably tend to just say, you know, it's definitely going to take me X days to do this brief, just knowing how long I take to write and how long it takes to distill what's in the record and what's in the um, what's in the research and and basically you know that that final day seems to always be taken up with just finishing the brief mm-hmm. you've got everything written it's you know got all the content the facts are great everything else but somebody's still got to read it over check for record citations check for your legal citations and everything else and i find that that's going to take some attorney a full day just to get that brief out the door even when you think it's done right so I always There's build always in that day. There's always more work that can be done. Yes. <laughs> There's always one more read that can be put right. on it, one more site that can be checked. And then, you know, your fee motion and your your request for a law argument or whatever else it might be, too. So, And what about when you are doing hourly appeals? Do you, um, do you always ask for a retainer? Yes. Almost. A couple cases I have not, if the trial attorney had an established relationship with a business that was in an ongoing litigation where we knew, you know, that that bill would be regularly paid um, through some, you know, insurance company or, you know, corporate entity. So in a couple cases I've not, but for the, for the most part, yeah, we always want to have a retainer. Now, some play, some cases will allow the retainer to exhaust and then bill them monthly for what the balance is. But for some individuals or, you know, maybe somebody we haven't worked with before, we've got different provisions. Some, you know, you got to, you have to pay the balance and then replenish the retainer um, or you have to constantly keep the retainer at X amount. and Like hold it for a deposit towards the last invoice kind of thing. Right. So... Um, we've we've got a couple different options on that, but try definitely to have as much in advance um, so that we're not ending up on the collection end. Do you have any sort of ground rule for how much of the budgeted, you know, in your mind at least cost you ask for in a retainer, or does it just depend on the credit worthiness, I guess, of the client? <laughs> right. A lot of times when we're taking on an appeal by the appellant, we'll have the appellant pay the record cost directly, which tends to be the biggest cost, or um, or we'll just figure that it's built into that retainer. We will try to build a little bit extra into the retainer for it. Um, typically, the costs are you know, such a small portion of the retainer. We're not too worried about it. Um, but you do have to keep it in mind, like in, again, in the family law appeals, where you might have a big trial transcript and it might end up eating a lot of the retainer if you're not careful to, to build that in. Um, and also advising the clients that they don't, they don't always understand that they're going to have that charge, you know, because that, that can be substantial if there was a long trial, obviously. Because like you mentioned before, that if, if you're counsel to an appellee, you might do very little work and then all of your work in the space of a couple of weeks and then very little work again until, you know, so it, that retainers become tricky. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, that's what I try to explain to people when I'm setting the retainer because I, especially on individuals who've had a trial attorney who'll take a lower retainer because they know that they're going to have these periods where they can replenish the retainer and, you know, withdraw if it's not. We don't have that option. Um, like you say, when you're the appellee, there's going to be minimal charges while you're just kind of tracking what happens. And then all of a sudden that initial brief comes in and that next month, 
basically almost everything important in the appeal gets done in that month mm-hmm. when you're writing that brief. Right. And so if you're not covered at that point, you know, you, you may end up not having been you know, not getting paid yeah. for the most key part. I mean, I know oral argument's important, but that paper that goes in is, you know, that's, that's the nuts and bolts of that appeal. So, and the same on the appellant side for the initial brief, that's the biggest chunk of time typically. And it's got to be good because you're trying to get reversal. So you're going to just have this huge chunk of time and the, and the client is going to get this one whopping bill. So, um, and like I said, the, those periods of quiet in between briefing are very, they can be very long. You might wait three months with only minimal expense on a bill. And then all of a sudden you get this, you know, whopper of a bill. What about, do you find clients try to negotiate the hourly rate when you're doing hourly rate appeals? I don't get a lot of negotiation on the hourly rate. I do, sometimes with attorneys, if we're, you know, established relationship and the attorney's going to be paying, they'll ask me to cut my fee or put a discount on it. And, I, you know, I'll negotiate that depending on the relationship and the type of case. Um, other than that, I don't get a lot of clients asking me to reduce my hourly rate, but they will want to reduce the flat fee. They'll want a cap. Mm-hmm. They'll want to lower the retainer amount, that type of thing. And probably the types of clients who are willing to pay an hourly rate are maybe less sensitive anyway, I suppose, right, so the, than the clients who are paying the flat fee. Yeah. I, You know, I think certainly I get calls where the client can't afford the hourly rate or or the retainer or you right. know any of it um and so i do try to have um a referral list of other options and i think this again comes up most often in the individual cases somebody who's been sued in an individual individual capacity or a family law case or you know maybe a probate case and um, I do try to have a list of other attorneys who do things at a lower hourly rate or might do something at a, at a flat that would be lower than I could. Um, I do think it's important to, you know, obviously I think our firm does a great job on appeals and we, you know, overturn all the stones and look underneath and do this and that. Um, but there's just some appeals where people can't. They, they don't have those resources right. or the amount isn't, isn't worthy of all that. Uh, and, and while I'm not necessarily willing to take one of those on the fly and, and not put the time into it that I'm used to putting into it, uh, I know that there are attorneys who will do it for less. And so I do try to refer out sometimes to people who have lower rates. Maybe they just started appellate practice, but I know that they're good mm-hmm. um, and that they'll understand these issues and it's not you know, the bet the company litigation where they, they need to have years and years of experience. or um, So I do try to keep a list of other people. Now, do you do trial consulting work also? I do. We don't do a lot of sitting through the trials, the full trials at least, mm-hmm. just from a time management in a small firm to have one of us out, you know, for a tough. whole yeah. trial, it'd be difficult um, we, we have done that. We've done, I've done sitting through a full trial. Um, typically we end up handling a portion. Um, I really think that appellate lawyers are underused in the, um, jury instruction verdict form formatting. I see so many errors that happen in that. It's such a critical phase. So critical. You've, you've made your whole case and it's going to come down to, to what those instructions in the verdict form are. Um, so I like doing that. Um, you know, coming in for the summary judgment motions, we do a lot of that, you know, trying to write up those key dispositive motions and help with those. And then we do try to come in when possible at the post-trial motion stage to try to make sure anything that's going to go up on appeal is properly preserved or, you know, or combating the other side's motions on that. Um, so now, how do you generally get retained and bill for those types of services when there's there's no appeal yet, right? right. There, there may or may not ever be an appeal. Is that uh, is that different in how you set up your fee arrangements? 
it still kind of falls into the same categories we've been talking about, but you can be a little bit more flexible, I think. So on the post-trial motions, I, you know, for a while we were pushing to have the percentage kick in at the post-trial motion stage. And we were getting a lot of pushback on that from in a contingency case. Um, so our thought was, well, we're coming in and we're doing the work that ultimately will apply towards the appeal. So we would try to just set the 5% or whatever the percent was going to be to come in and, and then that would cover both post-trial motion and the appeal. Well, we got some pushback on that because what if it doesn't go to appeal? What if the post-trial motions resolve the issue? And so we've done some different deals where we do a flat fee for the post-trial motion stage and then if we come in on the appeal then we we do our percentage um or they you know just pay us hourly to review the documents that they're going to file uh and look at those so you get a little bit more flexibility because it's you're not committing yourself to a whole long you know appeal at that point so we do a couple different things there I think some of the problems that you run into that is trying to anticipate what the next thing is going to be. <laughs> because as an appellate attorney, you want to lock in that you're going to be the uh, the appellate attorney right. on the appeal. I was going to say that should be a condition, right? <laughs> right. But, but sometimes you have no idea, you know, motion gets granted, motion gets denied. You know, maybe you're doing an appeal um, very different than what you thought you were going to be doing. So um, we do try to, I think divided into the stages this for the post-trial motions and then this um but sometimes you do get into these and then this and then if this this you know like a whole flow chart yeah so is there a particular process that you go through in evaluating cases when when somebody calls or nobody really comes through the door anymore right they always <laughs> right. call or send an email but is there a particular process that you go through in, in evaluating you know i guess whether or not to take the case and then what to charge for the case. Right. I would divide process up into two things. One is the process of do you have a, a set process or procedure for how you intake a case? And we don't really have a process for that. I've played with the idea of whether we could put one in place. Um, you know, trial lawyers can sometimes put in this process where the client calls and then they're referred to the staff who knows what to look for. And I've played with the idea of could you come up with an intake process for appeals where I'd have a staff person who could kind of screen, is it definitely an appeal? What's the order on appeal? Send send all that information, set up a consult um, in some more formalistic approach that maybe would free me up to not do the background work. Mm-hmm. But I've never really been able to institute it I think we get calls mostly from other attorneys, as as I said before, typically in a panic if right. something went wrong. <laughs> they want to they talk don't to you and they wait. want to talk to you right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and, and training a staff person to understand appellate, what's, what's an appealable order? You know, we get a lot of calls where the person doesn't even know that whether or not they have one. lawyers don't understand that, right? right? So... Yeah. so I tend to just go ahead and take the calls that come in um, as soon as possible or get back to, you know, either if I'm there, I'll just take the call uh, or I'll, if I get a message, I'll try to call back as soon as I can because there's always a sense of urgency, mm-hmm. even though there really isn't because right. it's going to be 30 days before you even file your notice. So I do try to do, I, I tend to handle it all myself and maybe that's not the most efficient, but so far it's worked and... And then I try to gather the basic information. You know, number one, do you have an appeal at all? Right. <laughs> we do get calls every now and then, and they really do not have an appeal. Um, second, do you have an appealable order, you know, that we can that we can start an appeal on? That weeds out quite a bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the trial attorney who wants to take the discovery order up, and it's right. really not subject to appeal. And then trying to gauge what are the issues that, you know, what's your problem? If it's an individual, it's what's your problem with the order? 
say you get a family a family law party and they they want to appeal this order and it's just a travesty well what is it about the order now most of the time that individual is going to tell you you it's know not fair right yeah <laughs> um the judge you know didn't listen to me or or things like that um but with attorneys which is mainly how i handle this the attorney can tell you these are the issues and you can sort of distill down on the issues with the individual i'm more concerned about you know sort of cost benefit analysis because uh, i don't necessarily assume that they'll be able to tell me what the legal issues are at that point in, sure. in time so i want to know kind of what do you think the issues are you know what was what was the process leading up to that and ultimately it really boils down to i think almost in every case me trying to do a cost benefit analysis first for them you know a lot of appeals are simply not worth taking because they will cost more than you will ever have a chance of recovering in them um a lot of people who call about appeals don't think about the fact that even if you win an appeal you're going to end in a reversal and appeal if you're the appellant you're going to end up back in front of the trial court and then what are you going to do do you have the budget for that um, so I, I had a family case pretty shortly after I left working at the court as a staff attorney and, and going into private practice. And it was a good appeal. but And it was worth taking the appeal for the money that was at issue. But what really concerned me was once, if they won the appeal, they were going to have to go back and do the equitable distribution all over again. Mm-hmm. And was it going to be better... And how much were they going to spend to do that? Right. So I'm trying to make sure the client understands, here's not just what the appeal is going to cost, here's what it might cost down the road if you're going to have further proceedings, and then what really are you going to possibly get out of it and and make that cost-benefit analysis. And then once I can tell that the client, it's worth the client's time to appeal, um, you know, and and if possible, you're looking at the legal issues. It's hard to gauge legal issues. You can, with an attorney who's calling you, you can assess: is it a legal issue? Is it an abuse of discretion issue? Is it a factual issue? Um, but you know, talk with them a little bit about what's your likelihood of success on an appeal. Very difficult to gauge, um, and then. After I've got sort of their cost-benefit analysis, here's your chances, here's what you're going to pay, here's what you might win, then that then to the considerations that help me decide is this economical for me to take as an attorney, um, and and you know and then ha- then set the fee on that. Yeah, it's a complicated process, right? I mean, there's so many moving uh, factors there to think about, and uh, it's. It's one of the challenges. I mean, I, I love the the practice of appellate law, but the I don't always love the business aspects of right. running a law practice. Uh, and that's, but it's something that we have to think about. And those issues are are different. It's very different. I mean, I think we we we've talked about for fifty minutes now why it's it's really there it is very different for appellate lawyers. It's definitely something we have to give some thought to. Well, and you know, I don't. I spend quite a bit of time, really. I've never taken the time to document it because I, I just really don't want to know. Right. <laughs> but I do spend a lot of time on those calls of somebody who calls about an appeal and trying to assess, is it really worth them taking the appeal? Is it really you know, worth my while to talk to them for that time? And I will say this, that I'm pretty sure if I had some con- uh, consulting company come in and talk about my profitability, they would discourage me from the time that I spent. But it is some of the best time and most rewarding time because the the people are coming and calling to find some advice and solace in whatever's just happened to them. So especially with the individuals who call who've had some traumatic experience in court mm-hmm. and to be able to explain it to them, to be able to, you know, give them some solace, even if the ultimate result is they can't take the appeal 
or it's not worth them taking the appeal to at least hear them out, hear their complaints, um, maybe strategize over other avenues for relief. Like in family law cases, a lot of stuff that people call and complain about is modifiable or it's just, you know, you don't like that the other person got more time. Well, maybe you can work that out, you know, over time once once litigation dies down. So it is some of my my most rewarding time being able to talk one-on-one with people, individuals or attorneys about strategizing what's really in your best interest. Obviously I love it to be in their best interest to take an appeal. Sure. Um, but a lot of times it's not. Right. So, and, and sometimes the advice that they get that maybe you really shouldn't appeal, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe you, uh, it's not worth your while to appeal, even if you're right. That right. can be very valuable advice. Yes. For sure. That they may or may not ever pay for, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kristen, this has been great. I, I think this is a topic, you know, talking about fees. We just don't talk about fees a lot. And I think right. that's because at some level, you know, we are competitors, I guess. Um, although the, the appellate bar is so collegial, it's hard to think of people that way sometimes. But yeah. it's, a, it's a topic that just doesn't get discussed enough, and I think that we, we work through some interesting things here. I certainly learned some things, and are, or at least got some, some things to think about in the process. I hope, uh, I hope the people who are listening will have the same, same experience. I do, too. I, I think it's interesting to hear how other attorneys approach fees. I know John Crabtree did a CLE on that for the appellate practice section and actually shared some of the different clauses he has. And yeah, that is, is worth a, mentioning. That's a great CLE that he did. Um, I assume is still available somewhere I think so. uh, through the Florida Bar. But uh, it actually had, he, you're right, he provided a lot of sample uh, clauses and provided some, uh, you know, sort of identified some of the risk areas in, right. in written agreements in the appellate uh, context, and I would definitely recommend that to people. I, was it a telephonic CLE? I think it was. A, was It It might have been telephonic. I can't remember if it was when we went to webinar or not. Well, I will look for that and try and put a link maybe in the put show a notes. Link. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I do think it helps us as a group. It's To me, this kind of discussion is an all-boats-rise thing. I mean, when you take the call, you're going to make your own calculus, so... That's where the competition, I think, comes in. But we all want to provide, you know, quality representation to people. And we want to be fair, you know, to ourselves and our firms. So uh, I, I think it's great to hear what other people do and, um, and you know, to hear about some of the alternative fee arrangements or these clauses. In addition to John Crabtree's presentation, you know, Paul Regensdorf will send out... Uh, missives every now and then on <laughs> new things, new developments in, in fees. And so he had sent out an, an email talking about these um, alternative fee recovery provisions that I did not know that you could do at the time, where you basically you know, take a family law case by the, from the party who really doesn't have the money, and you can't take it you know, without charging something, but you'd be able to charge the other party more and so you can even work into your fee contract that I'm only going to charge you a reduced market rate, but if I collect from the other side, I'm going to seek my market rates. So getting those kind of pointers from other attorneys, I think, helps us all. Um, you know, it's public information, so it's it's right. available. But getting those reminders and, and sharing it can be so um, important. Definitely, definitely. Kristen, thank you so much for your time today and for being on the podcast. And I think this is some great information. And uh, I'm sure we will will find another excuse to have you on the podcast soon. We're already talking about some other things. So we'll keep that under wraps for now. But but, uh, got some more stuff coming. That was great. Thank you for having me. Thanks. My thanks to Kristen Norris for being my guest on the Issues on Appeal podcast. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice. Nothing that I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. That being said, 
If you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. You can contact me at Issues on Appeal on Twitter or at my professional email, ddaiker at shoemaker.com. My contact information is always in the show notes, which are available in your podcast player or on my website, issuesonappeal.com. Thanks again for listening. Please consider telling another appellate lawyer that you know about the show. And if you like an episode, drop me an email or even better, a tweet or Facebook post and let me know what you think. And please consider using our sponsor, Commercial Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. Their contact information is in the show notes. Please take a moment now to add it to your contacts so you're ready when your client needs a supersedious bond. I've got another great show coming up in two weeks. And as always, thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal. Issues on Appeal.